I V M. Welcome to All Things Policy, a daily podcast supported by Pragati, a flagship media initiative of the Takshashila Institution. We're a bunch of policy nerds based in Bengaluru, and we like to bring a fresh perspective to Indian affairs and an Indian perspective to global affairs. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and join us for today's chat. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to yet another episode of All Things Policy. My name is Suman. I'm your host for today. The last week has been very interesting, or very animated, over discussions of the happenings at the Supreme Court of India, particularly the EWS or the, the Janhit Abhiyan versus the Union of India case. Right. So, what we're trying to do today is we're going to try and unpack the case and give you. a small briefing of a primer of sorts of what the entire situation or the entire case is about to unpack various facets of this i have with me my colleague shri krishna who is currently the knowledge manager at takshashila institution he is a lawyer by training so he has a good grip over all things law welcome shri thank you suman thank you for having me here to start off with what is the ews could you just get us on the same page on what the case is about yeah definitely so as things stood before 2019 reservation in in india was primarily based on your caste identity so all the affirmation action policies which were adopted by different central governments and state governments over time meant that people belonging to certain classes or castes in the indian context who were entitled to reservation belonged to different caste groups typically we see this as scsts and other backward classes or the obcs but in 2019 the parliament of india enacted the 103rd constitutional amendment which inserted two new provisions in article 15 and article 16 which provide for reservation in educational institutions and employment in the state respectively these two new provisions provided that the state is entitled to identify economically weaker sections in the society and provide them a reservation up to 10% which is over and above the existing reservation which has been provided to SCSTs and OBCs and in fact critically crucially and this is something we'll come back to later this 10% EWS reservation was not open for those who have already been covered under a different reservation policy which meant that essentially SCSTs and OBCs who are currently enjoying a certain form of reservation in educational institutes or public employment cannot be brought under this 10% EWS quota this was passed in the parliament almost almost all parties supported this and it was enacted and brought into force the government then through a notification has defined for us what EWS means so as per the government if you have to belong to EWS category then your family income should be less than 8 lakhs per month plus there are certain wealth criteria other than the income criteria these wealth criteria pertain to ownership of land as well as ownership of houses so it says that if you own more than 5 acres of agricultural land then you're not ews similarly if you own more than 100 square yards of property in a notified municipality then you're not ews and this is 200 square yards for a property which is in a different non notified municipality so i think the government intends to make a distinction between big cities and smaller cities or towns and basis this ews quota the government has started recruitment it has introduced this in college admissions 
and a lot of people had problems with it for different reasons which we'll cover and essentially the challenge came before the supreme court for the constitutional amendment the question was whether or not this constitutional amendment violates the basic structure of the constitution and whether the supreme court can exercise its judicial review powers to sort of strike down this amendment or not three judge bench had referred this matter to a five judge bench the constitution bench was set up during chief justice lalit's tenure and this bench delivered its verdict and by a split verdict which is 3 to 2 the court has upheld this amendment it has said that ews is constitutionally valid and permissible the majority feels there is no problem with it however the minority has struck it down as it violates the equality code which is a part of the basic structure of the constitution this is the broad summary and this other developments regarding ews so far thank you shri but before we get into the details of this particular amendment i'd like to take our listeners back to some history on the affirmative action reservations topic in within india right firstly i think there is a misconception amongst especially upwardly mobile urban youth that reservations are a means to poverty alleviation and therefore when somebody who is already wealthy is getting a reservation uh, already wealthy from the lower classes is getting reservation benefit it is violative or it is it goes against the grain of equality just to put that in perspective firstly the intention or the aim of affirmative action anyway and specifically in india is to undo or compensate for structural inequalities that are present in society now for a lot of us privileged folk we believe that caste is just another factor it doesn't play such an important role etc but we have to be aware that all inequalities or most inequalities in the indian society stem from identity and stem from these kind of structural inequalities going back to history a demand for higher share in the political administration of the country through political representation was made a long time back and this was championed by dr b r ambedkar the british actually gave in a concession and said that okay we will have reserved constituencies or you know proportional representation for the scheduled caste and tribe this led to some kind of a misunderstanding or some kind of back and forth between dr b r ambedkar and mahatma gandhi because mahatma gandhi did not believe in separating the electorates at all Okay, so the kind of compromise that came into being was the pune pact and from there there was the or the reservation for political representation itself right after independence this was extended to educational institutions as well as government jobs and in the late 80s 90s we saw the mandal movement which saw the other backward classes or backward castes or a lot of people got included into this reservation category so that is a small brief about the history of reservations in india we'll come back i mean now coming back to the specifics of the case itself the first part is the 50% now is this 50% sacrosanct what are the various you know aspects to this 50% shri could you elaborate on this sure suman but actually before coming to that i had a couple of points to make on the question that you posed right whether reservation as a policy can be used as a means for poverty alleviation now let us look at affirmative action generally a lot of people confuse between affirmative action and reservation as such 
but it is important to understand that there is a distinction between the two in fact affirmative action is a bucket of policies which can be used to uplift certain disadvantaged groups and reservation forms just one way of doing affirmative action right now just to illustrate apart from reservation in seats there are a bunch of other measures which you know the state offers to people belonging to disadvantaged groups for example there is relaxation in age cutoff there is relaxation in qualifying cutoffs there are certain scholarship programs there is subsidies there is in the form of scholarship which are given to meritorious students from these groups so all of these form a part of the broader bucket of affirmative action and reservation is just one of them in fact the way i look at it is reservation is actually a more extreme form of affirmative action if i may say so because it necessarily involves denial of opportunity to another in the sense if a seat is reserved it is reserved to a person from a particular category and the others do not have any claim over it hence the implication is in order to provide reservation the threshold that needs to be met for justifiability is higher in a sense like you need to establish that there is significant discrimination or a historical injustice that has been faced by a member of the group before a reservation can be offered as a means of remediating it so the question then is whether the same can be said of the poverty or the people belonging to poor classes in india right so whether the ews can be equated with people belonging to say the sc st or the obc communities who have been facing discrimination historically who have been denied opportunities because of their membership of caste over a long period of time and whether this is same as the poor in fact if you want to help people belonging to ews there are a range of alternatives when it comes to affirmative action right now of course the government can provide better scholarships can provide free education can provide waivers in tuition fee and so on and so forth so is reservation at all necessary for uplifting people who are currently poor so having set that context now coming to who are currently poor and do not belong to the obcs as opposed yes exactly right and so when the other way to look at it is reservation is an attempt at compensatory justice and not distributive justice this means that certain groups certain individuals belonging to particular groups in the indian social hierarchy have been victims of oppression have been victims of untouchability have been victims of caste discrimination and denial of opportunity on the basis of their caste identity for the longest time and hence reservation is a means of compensating them usually poverty alleviation is conceptually different because it falls under what is known as a distributive justice where because of a multidimensional factor certain people are economically weaker and they need state support for overcoming those challenges so whether reservation for ews meets that criteria is a debatable one in any case coming to your question on the 50% threshold right so where did this 50% threshold come from it was set by the supreme court in a decision which was handed out in 1991 called the indra sawni versus union of india this essentially pertained to the challenge of reservation extension to the obcs and the mandal commission report had come the i think it was vp singh government which had implemented mandal reservations and this was challenged before the supreme court and a nine judge bench held that it is okay to extend obc reservations because in india caste is the primary marker of social identity and caste groups who are defined as obcs for the purpose of the reservation are constitutionally entitled to these policies of affirmative action including reservation 
However, the court made a caveat. It said that, you know, reservation is always an exception to the rule of equality. We must treat everybody equal and equality of opportunity must prevail over any exception to equality, which is reservation, however justified it may be. So the court imposed a 50% cap, right? It said that your total reservation should not exceed 50%. However, this has already been reached. I think we should also mention that even Ambedkar, when he was talking about reservations, he expressed a fear or a reservation by itself that, you know, if we go this way, you know, including reservations for everything, it might breach, I mean, if it comes to a 70%, you know, threshold, then it goes against the concept of equality of opportunity itself. So, uh, yeah, so therefore, there was a need for a threshold. Now, that threshold was 50%. As was understood commonly, I'm not sure if it was baked into the structure of the constitution. Like, was it a hard and fast rule? Yeah, so that's the question, right? So in Indra Sauni itself, the court had said that in certain exceptions, in extraordinary situations, you can exceed this 50% cap. Say you're making reservations for people belonging to remote communities in the hilly areas, for example, or in areas where essentially, say, people from the disadvantaged groups, say people belonging to STs, dominate. So in such situations, the breach of 50% cap was allowed by the court itself. However, later we have seen in states like Tamil Nadu, which has extended reservation, I think it has crossed 70%. However, they have done a, they have used a creative way of doing this. They have put these reservation laws in something known as the ninth schedule of the constitution, where essentially any law which is inserted in the ninth schedule is not subject to challenge on the grounds of violation of fundamental rights, right? And whether this is justifiable is actually a pending matter before the Supreme Court. So... Having said all this, the question was whether this 10% cap for EWS, which is over and above the 50%, is in violation of the Equality Code. Crucially, the judges in this Janhit Abhiyan case do not give a direct answer to this question. In fact, even the minority which struck down the amendment on a different count, which I'll come to, does not give an explicit answer on whether this is allowed or not given the fact that this matter is already pending before another bench of the Supreme Court. Now, this 50% rule is not set in stone. However, from whatever the observations that the majority have made, it seems to appear that 50% rule will continue to apply for SC, ST and OBC reservations, while this 10% of EWS reservation falls in a different category altogether. And hence, we cannot be faulted on the grounds of breaching the 50% cap. And that's where we stand today. Okay. Yeah. When we are talking about this whole, you know, equality code, etc., I think we need to, you know, just refresh our listeners about two concepts within equality, that is formal equality versus substantive equality. I think the entire reservation or the affirmative action bucket goes towards creating substantive equality in the sense that formal equality means that everybody gets the same treatment. Whereas when you are talking about substantive equality, we are talking, we are taking into consideration start points for different people or different groups here. Right? So in that sense, the fifty percent for SCSTs went towards substantive equality. Now, do the others need the ten percent? You know, in terms of, does it you know even meet the equality need for the ten percent EWS? Is another question. That comes to mind to me at least. Yeah. Right, so Okay, at this point, I think we should take a break. We'll come back to different aspects of, of the case itself 
after the spring. We'd also like to remind our listeners that the Takshila Institution has a policy school where we run courses for different durations and different interests, all within the ambit of public policy. So the applications for all our courses are open now. So do go ahead to school.takshishila.org.in to apply for any of our courses. Thanks. We'll see you after the break. Welcome back, everybody. We're discussing the EWS. Shri and I have gone over a few aspects of uh, affirmative action, preservations of the specific case of EWS itself. Before the break, we were talking about formal equalities versus substantive equality when it comes to reservations. Shri, your ideas, thoughts on this with respect to the EWS judgment? Sure. Thank you, Suman. So since you posed this question that whether it is okay to have a 10% EWS quota at all. Now, there are two ways of looking at it, right? One is on the basis of whatever we have discussed so far, which is whether reservation is a means of poverty alleviation or is it some it is supposed to address some other problem, which is, you know, equality of opportunity or which is about inadequacy of representation in the services. So keeping that conceptual idea of reservation aside for a moment, the question of law here is essentially that whether through a constitutional amendment, the parliament is entitled to bring in this reservation for EWS or not. And this is slightly different because the threshold for deciding the validity of a constitutional amendment is, of course, whether it violates the basic structure of the constitution, whether the direct impact of that amendment is such that the constitutional identity is broken down. I believe this threshold is quite high. Right To meet that, it is a difficult burden on whoever is petitioning before the court. And the court actually agrees to this in the sense that the court, in fact, all the five judges, including the minority, have said that there is no harm when it comes to making affirmative action policies for the benefit of EWS, right? They're in agreement on this issue. That is because they do not believe that such an action carried out through a constitutional amendment is violative of the basic structure. So, however, the majority and minority differ on two important points, right? The first is exclusion of people who are already covered under the 50% cap, which is SCSTs and OBCs, from availing this 10% EWS quota as well. Now, the common logic is, oh, if they're already covered and getting a benefit, they should not be getting benefit under this 10% provision also. However, the problem with that reasoning is that, you know, it actually lends credence to the fact that you are confined to your caste identity and even if you manage to say even if you're not a beneficiary of a caste reservation then also you're not entitled to take an ews take an ews benefit now the minority feels that this actually violates the non-exclusion and non-discriminatory principles enshrined in the equality code and why is that because it feels that now you're putting them at a double disadvantage in fact if you look at the reality majority of the poor people actually are belonging to these particular communities. Now, excluding them from the EWS is unconscionable for the court because they are equally entitled and to treat them as a separate class, separate class of poor people on the basis of their caste identity is not permissible. If you're still with me on this, there is a second count on which the minority feels that 
the majority has got it wrong, which is on the point of inadequacy of representation. So in Article 16, before making reservation for public employment, the threshold that has to be met is that the state needs to prove that these people belonging to certain communities are not adequately represented in the services of the state. And they have to prove this with quantifiable data based on surveys and so on. However, this essential requirement for providing reservation to SCSTs and OBCs does not apply to the EWS category. And that is not possible also because how do you establish that poor people are not adequately represented, right? Because that is much more easier done for caste than for poverty. So that being said, the minority feels that it is discriminatory on this count as well, because now essentially for SESTs, OBCs, there is a higher threshold for availing the benefit of reservation as opposed to the people belonging to EWS, right? And this, I think, is a good illustration of how the majority has sort of taken a formal equality approach, while the minority has dug a little deeper to look at the substantive equality, which is equality of not only in terms of law, but also in terms of the actual outcome of the law. So this is what I wanted to bring out. At this point, I also want to bring in an interesting reading that I came across. While we, yes, 10% EWS is all fine, but when it comes to implementation, I mean, any policy will have some implementation challenges. I read that specifically in Karnataka, most caste groups are already represented in the reservation criteria. So there are just five caste groups or communities that are not represented. And these five form about 4% of the people. Now, does 10% reservation, 4% of the population actually come across as fair? And these will typically be forward, I mean, will be forward classes, obviously, right? So that, I mean, we would run into implementation challenges there too. So it will be interesting to see how this 10% implementation actually gets rolled out in different states. Some states have already said they're not going to, I think Tamil Nadu has said they're not going to implement this and they've challenged it. They're going to challenge it again. But yeah, it, the implementation part of the 10% still remains to be seen. Moving on, the other aspect of the AWS judgment itself is the individual versus the group identity. Here, you know, all this while we were discussing the group identity as a means of deciding who is eligible for reservation. Like you mentioned that, you know, they have to prove that they're not adequately represented in the services of the state or whatever else, right? But this judgment or this amendment actually overturns or to some extent changes that in the sense that we're looking at the individual as a measure of uh, individual income or family income as a measure of deciding who gets the reservation benefit. So what do you think about that part of it? How does, how is it going to play out? So I want to make two points on this, right? So the first is there is a distinction between belonging to a particular caste group as opposed to belonging to the poor class group, right? Because essentially in the former, there is no social mobility. In India, you're classified into a particular caste on the basis of your accident of birth. And the fact is you simply cannot change it. It's immutable in that sense, right? So that identity is attached to you through and through. The thing with poverty or identification as a poor person is different because there is still some amount of economic mobility, social mobility, which is available for these classes. For agency right? to make it better, right? Let's Precisely. Precisely. You can escape the poverty trap, right? Theoretically, at least. 
Yes. So that is the essential distinction. The fact that your caste identity as a marker of uh, discriminatory practice in the society continues with you throughout your life, while with poverty, it is different. So that is the first point. The second point is in terms of implementation, right? Now what EWS essentially has become is a way of targeting. And we know in public policy that targeting is not always efficient because the state has to, of course, first decide which is the best measure of targeting in the sense it has to define the EWS criteria in terms of income and wealth ownership. And secondly, it has to account for the problem of uh, under-inclusion and over-inclusion. That is, you include people who are not deserving and you exclude people who are actually deserving. Yeah. Now these... Sorry? In statistics, they're called type 1, type 2 errors, right? Yes, correct, correct, exactly. So now this will apply squarely to the EWS problem as well because this is different from establishing one's caste identity which stays with that person through their life while EWS essentially can change every now and then, right? Like I can fall in that bracket maybe this year, but the next year my income improves. So I'm out of that bracket. Now the year after that, I'm falling again within this bracket. So this essentially is a problem of targeting now. And then, of course, is the fact that there is some amount of EWS exclusion for OBCs and SCST quotas as well. And right? I'm sure you've heard of something known as the creamy layer. Yeah. So creamy layer is essentially an exclusion of people belonging to these communities for the purposes of reservation if you meet certain income and wealth and some other criteria. So the problem here is you have to ensure parity between exclusion under creamy layer and inclusion under EWS. The reason I say this is there cannot be a person who is say poor but since he's belonging to SCST or OBC he is not getting this reservation. Mm-hmm. and he's let's say he falls outside the creamy layer so he's not eligible for reservation under that category as well and now there is a person here equally placed who is entitled to ews because the ews criteria for determining who is poor is a little broader now this is not possible so i mean in the sense that it offends equality so the government has to now ensure that there is parity between creamy layer exclusion criteria and ews inclusion criteria so that's going to be the other challenge And the last thing which I believe requires highlighting here is the fact that the current EWS criteria is far too lax is what a lot of people believe. 8 lakhs per year of family income. A lot of people believe this, you know, it is more than what even taxpayers, I mean, people who are classified as taxpayers can also actually entitle themselves to this quota. So this criteria is also under challenge between before the Supreme Court, whether this has been fixed objectively on the basis of some studies conducted by the government or, you know, the government just came up with a number because this is the same as the creamy layer requirement as well, right? So whether this is justifiable is, again, this has to be judicially determined in the coming days. So these are some of the problems. And just to like give a counter illustration, so there is weaker section or economically weaker section quota under the RTE Act as well, right? So the Right to Education Act also has certain quota. And the income threshold over there are like substantially lower than the 8 lakhs. Some states have it as low as 50,000 rupees and some states have it as high as 3.5 lakh rupees per year of income. But the fact remains that this is way lower than the 8 lakh threshold that has been set. So now there are a lot of you know questions again as to whether there should be a parity with that criteria as well or can we treat it differently for college jobs and employment. So yeah, these are some of the questions which come to my mind. 
Yeah. So it has actually thrown, you know, a larger Pandora's box open than it has tried to solve any kind of problem is my understanding of this thing. I mean, before we conclude, do you have some thoughts about reservations? I mean, we've discussed reservations as a tool of poverty alleviation. Should it be looked at that way or are there other, you know, other ways to look at reservations itself. As for poverty with alleviation, I don't think there can be a greater impetus for economic growth than, you know, it is the economic policies that is going to get us the, the required economic growth. To increase the pie is what we need to look for and then divide the pie is what, I mean, is what we have to target at least. But it appears that we are focusing our energies on just dividing the existing pie into different, you know, arbitrary methods or different types, you know, different groups. So what are your final thoughts on this before? Yeah, so I second you on that, actually. And in my concluding remarks, I would just like to mention or reiterate it again that, you know, as far as using reservation as a poverty elevation uh, tool goes, it is important to understand that reservation has some inherent limitations, right? It is not about extending the pie, but it is about distributing it or rather redistributing it. So in fact, when you're thinking of poverty alleviation, it is always better to think of more weak and more universalist measures as opposed to some strong form of affirmative action such as reservation. Because reservation is not about empowering the maximum number of persons. It is about correcting historical injustice and also ensuring adequacy of representation, right? But however... And from the constitutional point of view, I think we need to remember that it is not a favor that we are giving to the weaker sections, but it is more of a guarantee of equality that the constitution provides to them. That, I exactly. think, gets often overlooked in discourse on reservation, but I think that needs to also come into the picture Exactly. It's, uh, it's like we said earlier also, it's rule of compensatory justice and you're actually remediating for past injustices, right? Which is why any anti-poverty measure should actually be looking at this problem very differently instead of opting for reservation, as, which is obviously an easy policy for the state to do, you know, other than at least actually... Exactly. Other than actually working towards poverty alleviation and, you know, unless larger economic problems such as, say, a jobless growth or, you know, slow expansion of formal sector in Indian's economy and all are addressed, there is very little that reservation can achieve. Sure. I think this as a topic is very, very huge in terms of how the reservations have panned out through the independent history of India. There are lots of pros, cons, etc. But I don't think we can cover everything here. But I do hope that we have given our listeners some food for thought to think about how reservation or how affirmative action should be seen and what is the role of the government actually. Yeah. Thank you, Sri. Thank you for being on this. And hopefully we'll do a few more episodes, you know, diving deeper into this. Thanks. Thank you all for listening to us. Thank you, Suman. If you liked our show, don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network. You can tune into them on the IVM podcast app, ivmpodcast.com, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow IVM on social media. The handle is at IVM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. 
And hey, if you'd like to dive into Takshashila's research on technology, strategy, and economic affairs, check us out at our Twitter handle at takshashilainst or our website takshashila.org.in. <laughs>